We've been trying to reflect together for a couple of weeks on the understanding of salvation. And uh, uh, this will be the, uh, the attempt to bring some of this together. And uh, so it's considering salvation number three in the title, uh, God with us, Emmanuel. Now, just very quickly for those who perhaps didn't have a chance to be with us in the previous two Sabbaths, um, just remind you that we're probably all united in faith because if, you, if we are trusting in God's love and mercy to save us, then we're united in that. That's, that's a huge circle, and we can celebrate that. Doctrine is an attempt to explain what the salvation is, and sometimes that creates some distinctions, but most of us would share even the same doctrinal framework of our understanding. Uh, the, the last term is where we're making more distinctions, and that is when we try to really understand what salvation is, we attempt to put the pieces together, we attempt to make a, a coherent understanding. And that's where some of the differences come to light. We've been exploring those differences not for the purpose of critique or alienation or segmentation, but rather to understand where we are. And this morning we're going to ask ourselves whether it's possible even though sometimes we've allowed different understandings of, the, of salvation and the gospel to become uh, divisive among us, whether perhaps there are um, insights that could help us to hold together and to see it slightly differently. That's going to be our purpose today. We, in part one, we took a look at the classic understandings in the history of the Christian church of the doctrine of the atonement or salvation, um, we uh, followed Gustav Aulen's famous book, Christus Victor, in which he outlined three different understandings, the early or classic dramatic model from the early church, sometimes derisively called the ransom theory. He tries to rehabilitate that model. I think he does a very good job and has been very influential in helping contemporary uh, Christians to really see the value in the idea of cosmic conflict of Jesus Christ gaining the victory over the alienating powers and principalities which have taken our world and us as human beings captive and that the primary motive here is liberation, God freeing us from bondage and bringing us into his kingdom. The second or the Latin or objective model has been most influential in both Catholic and Protestant thought and uh, often associated with Anselm who gave the classic formulation in his famous book Curdius Homo why did God have to become human, and often called the satisfaction theory, or later on in Protestantism, the penal substitutionary theory. Essentially, Jesus comes to die for our sins so that God can be both just and loving. And then shortly after that, still in the medieval period, 12th century, Peter Abelard, famous theologian and thinker and philosopher from Paris, and uh, sometimes derisively called the moral influence theory, but it's the emphasis on the love of God, that the cross is not a requirement that God needs to forgive us, but it is the consequences of sin, which God does not withhold God's self from, <laughs> becoming a victim from that process, and thereby demonstrating how intensely God loves everyone. And then we are moved through the power of the Spirit in seeing what God has done in Christ to be moved towards a deeper and better understanding of God. 
So those were the three models. We then asked, uh, what are these understandings um, of salvation? Um, how do they relate to Adventist understandings? And we looked at a couple of uh, fundamental beliefs and discovered the essential point. Remember, we put the color codes up there, uh, green for the one, red and, and blue. And it becomes very interesting when you start then looking at the places where salvation is, is discussed in Adventist uh, thinking. And you'll see the, the, the blues and the reds and the greens. And if you keep looking at various fundamental beliefs, because the doctrine of salvation is not only in one, but in several different places, you'll see that all of them are represented in various places. So we then try to take a look at maybe four basic different emphases that have been characteristic in Adventists and that have tended to produce a little bit of tensions and elbow jabs from one group to another. If you focus on grace and forgiveness, then you will understand salvation in one way. If you focus on God's providing power not only for forgiveness, for becoming forgiven and reconciled with God, but also power to overcome sin, power to actually gain the victory, maybe even perfection, then you can see a very different line. And thirdly, uh, the focus on liberation and justice. God is going to rescue us from a terrible plight that we're in, and God calls us to work and act correspondingly to God's actions. And therefore, we too care for the weak and the lost and the um, changes that need to happen in the world. And finally, uh, the focus on truth and the church as an institution, the church itself being the vehicle. There is no salvation outside the church. And although that is a Catholic formula for understanding, it's amazing how many Adventists have actually, in practice, come to really um, operate on that basis. Outside the church, now meaning us, our church, our denomination, there can be no salvation. Because what's at stake here is truth. And there can only be one body of truth that's really true. We then briefly looked at um, these four different groupings in Adventism. And uh, again, I've tried to find a, a label that the groups themselves would be comfortable with. That's a hard task, because so often we, we use terms in, in a way that tries to be derisive. Uh, one person came afterwards and co was concerned about the, the last one, and I certainly hear the point. You could perhaps call that evangelistic Adventist, because we don't want to misunderstand what mission's about. But I'm trying to find a label that would be understood by each of these groups themselves and feel comfortable with. So please don't take my little dramatic... Uh, enactments last time is anyway attempting to be derisive here, but simply to help us to understand the essence in somewhat of a caricature form of, the, of these kinds of emphases when they tend to go wrong. So that was a little bit of a, of, of a negative view. So historic Adventists, I've suggested that the focus is really on the authority and the law of God, and everything revolves around that in thinking of salvation. For evangelical Adventism, it's around the cross and grace and forgiveness. For progressive Adventism, it's about the kingdom and the principles of the kingdom that God wishes to see uh, happening in the church. And for mission Adventism, um, it is the focus on uh, the um, church as an instrument of God for the salvation of the world and to invite people to join this uh, movement moving towards the kingdom. Now, there was, there's a lot more that I could share, but I'm going to just skip over here because I don't want to focus today on all of this. But just to indicate that um, while we look at many different, we could look at many different themes for each of these groups, I want you to know that every one of them has real strengths. And uh, to be really fair, we need to go through all of that and to see how uh, historic Adventists really have something to contribute 
to the picture, even though the logic of historic Adventism is quite in contrast, and sometimes there can be real struggles going on between these various models. There are also weaknesses, and we won't dwell on them now. And the evangelical Adventism, we could go through the same things. We could, for example, just look, maybe, maybe I should just read one a text to show that everyone has a text. For example, for the historic Adventists, the key text could be this. And in there, this is from Revelation, so in there, that's the 144,000. In their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Or maybe an Ellen White quote, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Christ Object Lessons, page 69. Have you heard that quote before? So just looking at that, not going through all of these other themes, now we come to evangelical Adventism. What text would be sort of representative there? But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Colossians 1.22. And what about this quote from Ellen White? Several have written to me inquiring of the message of justification by faith, whether the, the, the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, uh, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. And that's 1890. Some of you are familiar with that text. And so, evangelical Adventism, too, has its strengths and weaknesses. And remember, what we're looking at here is comparing... The, the, the extended logic, when you take that focus and you build a whole doctrine of salvation around it, you, 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 can, you can see it moving in certain directions. Well, what about progressive Adventism? A key text may be this one. All are justified by God's free grace alone through his act of liberation in the person of Jesus Christ. For God designed him to be the means of expiating sin by his death, effective through faith. That could, of course, also be a classic text for that word expiation. could be a good one for the evangelical Adventists. God meant by this, however, to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had overlooked the sins of the past, to demonstrate his justice now in the present, showing that he is himself just and also justifies anyone who puts his faith in Jesus. What about Nella White quote? There was a present truth in the times of Luther, a truth at that time of special importance. There is a present truth for the church today. He has been pleased to place men under various circumstances and to enjoin upon them duties peculiar to the times in which they live and the conditions under which they are placed. If they would prize the light given them, broader views of truth would be open before them. And you can see, therefore, the very sense of present truth, meaning not everything that we understood or the way we looked at it in the past will necessarily be the best way of understanding it and looking at it in the future. So this is a key feel for progressive Adventism. Again, here there are strengths and weaknesses. What about Adventism, evangelistic Adventism, or as I've called it, mission Adventism? Here's a text. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, obviously... Please note, every one of these passages is, in fact, in the Scriptures. Right? So this is not a matter of trying to tear it apart and say, well, you know, these are all biblical passages, and therefore they're all true. But what we try to show is just in, in briefly how, when you focus on this aspect and you develop the logic, it can develop in a, in a way that might lead it to be quite in contrast to certain other developments that go in a different direction. And G. White quote, evangelism is our real work. 
evangelistic work, opening the scriptures to others, warning men and women of what is coming to the world, is to occupy more and more time at the time of God's servants. And that was 1906. The final objective of all efforts of Seventh-day Adventist Church is that of preaching the gospel and preparing men and women to meet the Lord. That's actually Arthur White in the, in the bibliography, but captures the spirit. All right, so I'm not going to dwell on all of this. I just want to move past it, gain strengths and weaknesses to each of these. Now, what I'd like to focus on in our session today is an attempt to ask this question. Is it possible that we can find, by turning back to Scripture, where's Sigbay, Professor Tonstadt, who remarked last Sabbath, did you remember, he gets a little uncomfortable with so much systematic theology, where's the Bible? Well, I I hope he may be seasick on Scripture before I'm finished tonight, we can have to move quickly, but I'd like to ask this question as we explore together a little. Is it possible that every one of these distinctive types of Adventism obviously rooted back to core dimensions that are scriptural and correct, have each of them perhaps missed something that could be able to tie these various facets together. So that's my hypothesis with you today. And I'd like to just explore with you. We're going to have to tighten our seatbelts occasionally here and move quite quickly because there's much more than we're going to have time to do. I'm going to be hopping on representative ideas and inviting um, you to move along with me and see uh, if this makes sense. So what is our, our concern? Have we perhaps missed a dimension that is deeply scriptural about how to understand salvation, the atonement, that could help us possibly to see a way that these various facets are not necessarily centripetal? Is that right? Centrifugal, <laughs> flying outwards. Is that the right term? Help me, physicists. Yeah. The other would be pulling together, but pushing away. That we may find, in fact, that there's a way of understanding them together. So I'm going to go through quite a lot of texts. This is just an indication, and I'm going to put them up on the screen. We will not have a chance to read everything, but representative. Each step is going to be a, a step of unfolding. And uh, put up your hand if you don't follow what we're doing here. I just would like to start out by asking you, have you ever pondered? I'm part of, one of the hats I wear is a hat of an, of an historian. And um, I wasn't the first to read Edward Gibbons. In fact, Ellen White read a lot of that. Um, he, was, he was furious with Christianity. He was not particularly enamored with Christianity. He wondered how could such a grand and great civilization as the Greco-Roman world be collapsed by this barbaric bunch of uh, Eastern mystical... You know, rabble-rousers, how could it overtake the empire? The rise and fall of the Roman Empire is the, the product. But when you think about it, it is an amazing thing. This early Christianity was a revolutionary message. Sometimes I'm concerned that our interpretation of the New Testament ends up in understanding it as simply a minor textual correction to the Old Testament. Now, don't misunderstand me. I see, I'm not a Marcionite, I see the New Testament as profoundly connected to the First Testament. These two belong together. But it's important to understand that what led Christianity to become not just an additional sect of Judaism, but a world religion, if I may use that missiological term, but 
a revolutionary movement that within 300 years leads to the very emperor becoming a Christian and unfortunately coercing everyone else to become a Christian by fiat. Uh, the first sort of bad sort of stumble of the new Christian empire. But what was it? What was it? Now, if it was just a matter of highlighting that God is not a vicious God, but that God is a loving and caring God who is both merciful and just, I put it to you that that would not have been a revolutionary step because that God was understood in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Can you, can you agree with me on that? Although their passage is hard to understand, but read the book of Revelation too. Some people have problems with that, although I think you've been well-schooled in this class over some time to learn to read the book of Revelation in a different light. The violence is being absorbed by the very Lamb of God who ultimately vindicates the character of God. I think that's a wonderful way of reading the book of Revelation. But please understand, my understanding of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament, is that it is a picture of God that is consistent with the picture of God in the New Testament. Right? It's not a gap. It's not a break. It's not a fundamentally different God. Marcion was wrong in thinking that we could ditch the Old Testament and just pick a few passages from the New because it's a different God. So what then is the basis for the revolution? So let's, let's go together. First of all, I want to just remind you of passages in, in Scripture where the biblical writer, in this case Paul, just gets almost carried away. Have you, have you noticed some of these passages where the, the language itself becomes so overpoweringly glorious and wonderful that you have to break out into song? He sometimes ends the passage with an amen. This is one of them. I won't have time to read the whole thing. Look at some of the last passages. You know Romans 8. In fact, we should have started way back where he talks about the fact that we can call God Abba Father. We are united with God because of election, because of creation, because of redemption, because of the work of the Spirit. He goes through a whole series of things and the reconciling work of Jesus. And then he climaxes the chapter with these words. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's powerful. What? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And yet we often preach as if the thing that separates us from God all the time is sin. And you better make sure that you overcome sin in order to get right with God, one way or another. This is a profound sense here that something has made it impossible for us to be separated from the love of God. All right, let's look at another one. Ephesians 1. I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. Notice, it's wisdom, it's revelation. So that, with the spirit of wisdom and revelation, sorry, so that, with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, your glorious inheritance among the saints, his and yours. And what is the immeasurable greatness of the power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? 
God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Can you see Paul sort of waxing a look? And he has put all things under his feet and made him the head of all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. That's God, the fullness of God who fills all in all. Wow. <laughs> so, I remind you of these passages. Ephesians chapter 3. We don't have time to read all of this, but just the end here. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> right. My point I want to remind you that the New Testament is full of theological reflections that drive to this expansive, incredibly um, all-encompassing language. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, it breaks out into hymns, right, repeatedly. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb. I want to put it to you as a tentative suggestion that we haven't, in in much of our preaching and our proclamation, our ministry and our evangelism haven't quite captured the same tonal quality as the New Testament. Why? Well, let's take a look. There's a strange category uh, throughout the New Testament that uh, is often just overlooked when we read. And that is this, no- this notion, this Greek word, mysterion, you know, translated in Latin, as, as a mystery, and, and, and of course in English as, as a mystery. Or sacrament, actually, in the Latin, and then mystery in English. Now, this is just one text to represent a whole lot of, and you will remember this in Jesus' preaching and teaching. This verse in Mark 4.11, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret, or the mystery, that's musterion, of the kingdom of God. But to those outside, everything comes in parables. What is this mystery of the kingdom of God? Now, that's not the only one. Let's keep going. First uh, Corinthians 2.1 When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words of wisdom. The mystery of God. What is this mystery of God? Think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. In chapter 4, verse 1. What is the stewart of God's mysteries? Now, please note. Of course, it was these passages that provided textual support for the earliest and oldest heresy in the Christian world, which is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism reveled in the mysteries and began to fill in the gaps (laughs) and began to introduce a lot of Eastern uh, mystical religions and ideas of eons and categories and all sorts of things, all rooted in the resurrection and in Jesus, but building up some grand uh, speculative philosophy uh, in the place of what we find in the New Testament. Somebody has put it this way, however, and I think it was Roald Dedron, actually, who told me this. You, we must always remember to read the heretics, because nearly always we can affirm what they affirm, but often need to deny what they deny. I think it went that way. Anyway, the point is that we can learn from the heretics, because often they're onto something important, even if they take it in the wrong direction. Does that make sense to you? So, yes. There we go. You probably studied with him too, didn't you? <laughs> so let's get that clear. Right in what they 
affirm. Correct. So it's an attempt to narrow it down rather than to avoid some of the complexity. Classically, example, areas, right? All right. Let's take another one. This comes from Romans 11.25. So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has to come upon Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. In this particular passage, this mystery is tied with Jews and Gentiles and God's opening expansiveness and inclusion. That gives us a hint, but that's not the full picture yet. Just a a few sample references to this notion of mystery. Ephesians 6.19 Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Now, what is the mystery of the gospel? That's our, that's our heuristic question in our little detective class here this morning. What is this? What is this notion in the New Testament? Well, we've talked about a revolutionary message, a mystery, and now I'd like to point out some passages which indicate that this mystery is not new, but that this mystery was hid from before ages and, 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 and eons. In fact, that's a, that's a phrase used in the New Testament to indicate from the very beginning. So this is an eternal mystery. Let's, let's read this passage from Colossians 1, 25 to 27. I became its servant, that's the servant of the gospel, according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. See how many times mystery appears. But notice this distinctive addition now. Mystery is not just a contemporary mystery. Or not just, it's, this is not a mystery that is grounded in the unbelief or the, or the, or the mis, misunderstandings of human beings. This is a mystery that has been hid with God's purposes from the beginning and is now disclosed. Paul makes very clear that it doesn't contradict what the prophets and the kings said in the previous testament, but that it connects them. It, it really fulfills them and moves forward. But it is new, and it's broken into understanding during this time. Um, what about Colossians? Did I, did I move on? Yeah. This one, which is 1 Corinthians 2, 7 to 10. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden. This is what the NRSV translates. I think it's a good translation. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. My goodness, what is this? <laughs> When last did you hear um, in, from an Adventist pulpit too much talk about mystery and about something that God has prepared from before the foundations of the world? Another little, another little clue, very tentatively stated. Don't stone me for this. But would you agree with me that sometimes we tend to think of the gospel, we tend to think of salvation as something that only begins and only comes to light once sin enters into the world, you know. God is there just being and doing what God does, then sin arises, and then everything that we think we know about God, grace, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, patience, then kicks in. If that's the case, then you have a strange logic going on. Sin has a certain priority, and God is reacting to sin. Are you with me? Just think about that. Or should it be 
that God's grace, unmerited favor, God's purposes come first, and that sin profoundly and essentially is a reaction and rejection against God's purposes. Think about that. Which comes, which has priority, sin or God? So here it says, um, be decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. No eye has, or, or ear, has seen what God has prepared. That's, again, a little clue. Because if what God had prepared, I mean, if, if, if the whole purpose of salvation is to get us made right, then I put it to you, that's what every single religion, every single religion I know in the world, has some sense of brokenness of human beings and some pathway towards wholeness. If that's what we simply take Scripture to be telling us, and that is that it's a way to to put the pieces back together, then um, I wonder whether the language of the New Testament that we've been reviewing is appropriate. It seems to be pushing towards something more than that in here. And then it says, these things God has revealed through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. All right. Now, it's a revolutionary message. It's a mystery. It's a mystery hid from eternity. One more text on that. Maybe there's another one. Now to God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed. Repeating what we said. Now we take a next step. Does the Bible tell us what this mystery is? And I want you to follow with me here. And and if you object, if if you think I'm doing anything that's not quite right, then put up your hand and let me know. I'd like us to look carefully at Colossians 1.25 through 2.3. It's a little small. I hope you can read it on uh, on the screen. I became its servant, again the gospel, the servant of the gospel, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in, or that little phrase in in Greek could also be with you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I, I just want to, yeah, again, it's a journey. I want you to think with me. The text seems to be saying that this mystery, hidden from before the foundations of the world, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Notice, this was the perfect opportunity to say, the mystery hidden from the foundations of the world is that God would send his son to die for our sins on the cross. Perfect place. This is after all Paul, or at least Pauline school. Or he could have said, the glory of the gospel hidden from all before the foundations of the world is that God is working in Christ to liberate us from sin and bondage and present us to God. Now, of course, it does say that in some other places. But at these crucial passages, 
it has this to say, simply the gospel, the mystery from hidden from before the ages is none other than Jesus Christ himself. The person of Jesus. And then this powerful passage, in whom, in the person of Jesus, is hid all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Keep that in mind. Alright, here's another one, Colossians 1. But at the same time, pray for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word that we may declare the mystery of Christ. That's the mystery, the mystery of Christ. It has to do with this event of God with us, of Jesus Christ. Another one, First um, Peter 1.20. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Without a doubt, great is the mystery of our religion. Sorry, I'm <laughs> so tied to the King James Version. I see the NRSV turns it around a little bit. Same sense. He was re- Notice, here is, this is a powerful text. Because here's one of those little creedal formulas that begin to appear, that are used as such in the early church according to, to scholars. And when you come to say, what is the mystery of our religion? What is the heart of it? What is its essence? In the passage it says... Notice a narrative. <laughs> it's not a principle. It's not even grace. It's, you can't reduce it below the basic narrative. And here's the narrative stated as briefly as you could put it. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles, believed in throughout the world, and taken up into glory. Can you see how it's focused not on function, but on essence. On ontology is a big word we use. What does that mean? Well, ontology simply means on being. Something has happened in this being that affects our being. And that ultimately salvation has to do with being, not just with function, with behavior. Does that make sense so far? You willing to tentatively go along with me on this? All right. Next passage. This is now 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. This is talking about the work of Christ, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. His grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now that's a startling text, because it means... (laughs) That this is the notion of grace not as forgiveness of sin. That's a subset of grace. This must mean unmerited favor. Because if it is from the very foundations before even creation, which is what that phrase means elsewhere in Scripture, then this is something that is not reactive to sin, because God doesn't destine sin, that's for, for sure. Then this is something that is the primordial purpose of God. In creation, in salvation, in everything that God has done. So what begins to arise here is that we profoundly, that at least the New Testament writers believed that what had happened, what had become disclosed in Jesus was the primordial love of God. Something profound beyond any kind of fix-it or solution to a problem. Jesus, not just a fire escape, but Jesus as an expression of the primordial and fundamental nature and purpose and intention of God from the beginning. Well, let's see. That may be too much speculation. So, this grace was given to us in Jesus Christ before the ages began. 
but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now you begin to see something. Adventists have always been right on this point, and it's a joy for me to let you know that this is one of the many points in which the general theological world has come to see our point of view. Massively. It is still true that popular Christianity largely understands when you die, you have an immortal soul, and you go back to hell, you know, you, you, you go back to God, and you, and that's it. That's moving on. But Adventists always felt that the Old Testament, New Testament, pushed us towards thinking more concretely and holistically. Life is not something you can chop up in two pieces, have a dead body, and have living souls. Life is whole. And I think that's sort of a theme that Loma Linda has tended to put into statues and practice around here, holism. The fact that we have a holistic anthropology. I think it's right. I think it's biblical. And right here comes the payoff theologically. If God is the only one who has immortality, and that's a quote from Scripture, God is the only one who has immortality, then, friends, the question is not what happens to my immortal soul when I die. If I've been good, I get rewards, and if I've been bad, I get punished, which is a caricature but part of popular Christian ideas. No. Immortality has not, is, not, uh, is not an attribute of any creature. Can you agree with me on that? Creatures are finite by definition. We have beginnings and endings, and it has to be that way, unless God intervenes in a way that is spectacular and blows our minds. Right? It couldn't mean anything else to talk about life and immortality brought light to the gospel than this point, which John says in a very different way in the Gospel of John, where he says, we have been given eternal life. This means that God has shared God's existence with us. God has opened up God's inner life to us. Now, please understand, this, of course, does not mean divinization. This does not mean we become gods. That would be impossible, biblically and logically and any other way. What it means is that we may have to take more seriously the fact that when God with us happens, Emmanuel, it's not just God coming down here to be with us, to teach us a little bit, to teach us some truths, to correct some misunderstandings, to show the love of God, to die for some sins, to enable forgiveness. It might be that the New Testament is saying that in Jesus Christ, something fundamentally has happened to all of humanity. Can you see that? God has, without ceasing to be God, adopted humanity into divinity so that, wow, yes. Otherwise, how could we have as, our, as the gift to us a share in God's immortality? You see? If that is right, then it helps me to understand why the New Testament has this over-the-top language. <laughs> Because it, it blows my mind. I don't even know how to make sense of that. And it would seem to me to be something fundamentally distinct from a Hebrew Bible understanding, which doesn't even, un, doesn't even begin to think about life after death other than in very shadowy terms until very late in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament. So, is that another passage? No, that's it. Let me see if I can make it move. There we go. New point. So the old point was, this is the mystery is Christ himself. 
and now. Something even more that the New Testament says, that Christ is the goal of creation itself, the telos of creation, why creation is even here. Profound passages. Read Colossians 1, 15 to 19 with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. That's a strange notion. In him were all things created. What does that mean? We know God is the creator. We have a Trinitarian understanding. God the Father is creator. We know that Jesus too is the creator. And the Spirit is involved in creation. But what does it mean to say that all things were created in him? For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him, that we know, and for him. Some translations say Christ is not only the agent of creation, but Christ is the goal of creation. Things were created moving towards God's primordial purpose now come to light in what God has done in Jesus Christ. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, another passage, this time from Romans 11. Paul again getting eloquent here, breaking into song, right? Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. An amazing passage, hard to know. What does that mean? The New English Bible translates that source, guide, and goal of all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. One more, First Ephesians 1, verses 5, 9, and 11. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. Now notice, not because of the fact we were sinners and He's redeemed us, but according to the good pleasure of His will. With all wisdom and insight, He has made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure that He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth, all things in Christ being brought together, united. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will. So here's a sense of a primordial purpose of God accomplished in Jesus. 
Now, just, uh, I'll make reference to this. We don't have time to read them in full. But we've taken certain passages and texts, and I'm aware of the limitations of doing that because really all of these passages are best studied in their context and at length. And I invite you to do that if you um, have a chance to look at the slides. But um, there are a couple of passages that put it all together in such a powerful way that even though I'm only selecting a few selected verses from them, I invite you to look at them in depth because they really put the whole picture together in a very powerful way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is one of them. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. I really um, prefer the Revised English Bible translation here, which God has prepared uh, or, or to bring us to our destined glory. <laughs> because the view here is that God intended to give us something that was vastly beyond what we could rightfully ever have hoped for or even imagined as creatures. Even perfect creatures living uh, in a perfect universe. We would not have even been able to imagine that God wished to share God's life with us which is what has come to light according to the witnesses of the New Testament. Another extended passage is that tells us that the purpose of God is the one we've just selected a couple of passages from. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. You see there? That, that's, that's what Christ came to do. That as God adopted God's self into humanity... So God has adopted humanity into a share within God's inner life without divinizing us. And this is according to the good pleasure of His will, not a reactive will, but the good pleasure of His primary will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He has freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. With all wisdom and insight, He has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So that you, can, can you begin to see here how the, the New Testament sees that in Christ there's a kind of at one that has happened in the very being of Jesus. Not what Jesus comes to teach, not what Jesus comes to achieve, not what Jesus comes to work out, but in Christ itself, in the event of God with us. God has achieved it. Now, there is a sequel. There is a consummation to this. God doesn't only want to be God with us, but God wishes in the fullness of time for us to be with God too. Can you say amen to that? Right. So it's a two-way street here. That is the truth of the notion of, in a certain sense, substitution. He becomes what we are so that we can become what He is. A profound uh, biblical idea. All right. Now... Uh, let me just end with a little picture, and I'm now treading onto grounds where we have the expert in the audience here, uh, uh, in, in, in Dr. Sigve Tonstadt. Um, but I, I'm always intrigued by this picture that appears so many places in the book of Revelation that defines what 
it understands as the human destiny to be. Look at it. Um, starting out, I believe, in, uh, I picked up the very first chapter, verse 6. I'll have to say, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that God has given, and then it says, and he praises God, and he says, to be made, we are to be made, the old um, King James Bible said, kings and priests. But this says, to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. That's the human destiny. To be, uh, to, to the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne. Strange notion. I mean, to, what does it mean to sit on the throne of God? Not next to it, not in front of it, not in the light of the throne. Uh, by the way, who, who else sits on the throne of God right now? Christ. And I believe the understanding of the New Testament is that Jesus is the representative human being sitting on the throne of God uh, proleptically for all of us. For that is the destiny that the book of Revelation says is for all of us. To share in God's life, immortality, and therefore to share in God's cause in God's mission. What a destiny. If that's the meaning of the New Testament, then that's mind-blowing. All right, quickly. And then it goes on and says, verse uh, 321 to the one, okay, I've read that, verse f- uh, chapter 5, verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on the earth. Not just in heaven, but on earth. It's your destiny. Then chapter 20, and I saw thrones, and those seated upon them were given authority to judge, and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. And they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. And I thought, well, maybe it all comes to the end. That's just a little interlude, the thousand-year interlude. But in chapter 22, and there will be no more night in the end. This is now already the new heavens and the new earth. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be the light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let me try to summarize and conclude. I put it to you then that the New Testament understanding, which is a revolutionary understanding, is that the good news or the gospel is Jesus Christ. That's it. You know, uh, It's not what Jesus did, what he taught. It is Jesus Christ, not simply as a means to an end. The good news is not that God had a plan to fix us from our problem and therefore Jesus comes to make things right. Jesus is the good news that displays to us the fundamental heart of God, what God is like. The God that we serve is the God who is God with us, who is the coming God from the very beginning, is the God who has not wished to be simply God in serene and splendid holiness, but to be a God who reaches out to perfect creatures, and when those creatures rebel, to pursue them gently with loving, tender care. Can you say amen to that? Not simply as a solution to the sin problem, but as the expression of God's good pleasure, His original one, His original will. Of course, when we sin, it also becomes a solution to the sin problem. No doubt about that. That's why some of these other understandings are secondary, but nevertheless central. That the cross, in some sense, demonstrates the justice of God, makes possible our awareness of the forgiveness of God, and helps to establish all, all of that is right. And for a Jewish mind to think of this in terms of sacrifice, self-sacrifice, is right. But underlying all of this, I put it to you, is a, is a deeper understanding that holds all these metaphors together. All right. Not merely what Jesus did, live, teach, and die, but who and what he was. Second point, Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, is God with us. As God with us, Jesus was and is once and for all an event 
that involves the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and us in the act of atonement. It is true that as we come to know this, so it becomes operational in our lives, and the presence of the Holy Spirit makes us operative, but it doesn't change the fact that it is true for the whole of humanity. Right? God with us is what God has done for all of us. I thought I'd perhaps end with a, come close to the ending, with an L.G. White quote. Uh, it's, it, it, many people have pointed out, my, my, uh, some of you know my father wrote a book on Ellen White's Christology, and I was a young <laughs> master's level student at the time he was doing his dissertation, and so we spent hours discussing this. It's called Crossroads in Adventist Christology, and some of you may be familiar with it. And uh, very quickly we discovered that Ellen White, like the fundamental beliefs, uses almost all the models and metaphors that are in the scriptures and that are in the history of Christianity to describe salvation. If you want to find moral influence language, you can find it. If you want to find ransom theory, you can find it. If you want to find penal substitution, you can find it. It's all over the place. Some have suggested that Ellen White didn't really have a coherent Christology and that she just uses metaphors that she was led to use in the sources that she was working with. Both my father and I think differently. <laughs> um, I'm quite willing to admit that Ellen White doesn't know everything and that she didn't profess to be a systematic theologian and that she's a prophet, Tess, and therefore she has a role of what a prophet does, not what a theologian does. Nevertheless, I'm, I'm convinced, watching her very carefully working with the Baker letter, for example, exactly what she chooses and what she leaves out, that I think she knows what she's doing. And I think here is one of the most powerful ways in which Ellen White says what is really at the heart of salvation. Let me try and read it with you. In his humanity, that's Christ's humanity, he was a partaker, sorry, <laughs> he was a partaker of the divine nature. So again, in his humanity... He was a partaker of the divine nature. Remember, that's that passage from Peter. We are to be partakers of the divine nature. From all eternity, Christ was united with the Father. And when he took upon himself human nature, he was still one with God. He is the link that unites God with humanity. It is because Christ took human nature that men and women become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Notice, it's not, we don't become partakers of the divine nature when we start practicing good things and become sort of analogically holy like God is holy. Right? That may happen, but that's not what partakers of the divine nature means. This is ontological. He brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christ was appointed to the office of mediator from the creation of God. That's astounding. Because if Christ was appointed to mediator, you have two choices. One is that sin was preordained from the beginning. We don't believe that. We can't hold that. That does not make for a right view, a scriptural view, a biblical view of God. The other option then is that the mediatorial or the atonement or the reconciliation role of Christ, God and humanity together, is primordially God's purpose and intention which is then worked out in the consequences of sin later on. But where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And God doesn't change God's purposes because of the arising of sin, but God allows sin, or not allows sin in the end because it amplifies the purposes and grace of God. But God remains faithful and consistent with His original purpose and intention. Do you agree with that? Okay. Then he goes on to say, Yeah, in the office of the mediator from the creator of God, set up from everlasting, in the very beginning. Before the world was made, it was arranged 
that the divinity of Christ should be enshrouded in humanity. Before the world was made. So before the arising of sin. If you look at Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, it was at the point of creation of the earth that sin arose in heaven. This was not done by going out of himself to another, but by taking humanity into himself. Thus Christ gave to humanity an existence out of himself to bring humanity into Christ, to bring the fallen race into oneness with divinity is the work of redemption. It's a powerful statement of redemption. Christ took human nature that men might be one with him as he is one with the Father, that God may love man as he loves his only begotten Son, that men may be partakers of the divine nature and be complete in him. The Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the only begotten Son of God, binds the human agent, body, soul, and spirit to the perfect divine human nature of Christ. Finite man is united to the manhood of Christ. Through faith, human nature is assimilated with Christ's nature. We are made one with God in Christ. Powerful statement, isn't it? Remember, not divinization. We're not Mormons. We don't believe in... That, that, that God and Jesus are just evolved humanity. But we believe in something that's deeper than that, and that is that God who remains God eternally and will never be creature, who created creatures, wishes to identify so closely with creatures that creatures will be welcomed and adopted into God's very family. That's why Paul chooses, I believe, the most primary metaphor that he uses for salvation is what comes to light in the Roman world, the Roman notion of adoption, where a slave could be adopted by the Caesar, by the emperor, and once adopted has exactly the same legal rights and status and could become Caesar himself because of the quality of legal adoption. We are made one with God in Christ. Well, let me just finish and say, could... Could this help us bring the four types of Adventisms together? Well, I would suggest that if we could understand that the gospel is the Advent, by the way, the Advent is the coming of God, not just a future Advent. We believe in a second Advent, therefore there's a first, and before that there was a primordial Advent. The Advent itself is the coming of God, is God with us. You're all clear on that. The Advent is Jesus, is God with us, is the gospel. If that's the case, then could this help us with the diversity of metaphors and models of salvation? If salvation is Jesus Christ, then the rest of these models and metaphors are attempts at looking at different facets of the central and profound truth. And then we can see if historic Adventists have focused on power and the classic cosmic conflict uh, drama, there is powerful reasons to do that because God in coming in one sin has happened, God comes into this world to achieve God's primordial purpose but also to battle against the principalities and powers and overcome the devil and bring us back to the kingdom of God and what God's purpose was. Can, can you see? So they're not wrong. They're not wrong. There's powerful insights there. But when you take that too far and you turn out the whole gospel revolves on my becoming perfect like Jesus was perfect, not sinning in thought, word, and deed, and then you make that dependent on salvation, that's gone too far. Well, what about evangelical Adventists? Grace and substitution. You can see it's got to be there. This is unmerited favor, of course. And once we've sinned, it's even more amplifying the fact that God pursues us through his mercy and grace who least deserved it. He remains faithful to his primordial intention to do this for this creature and this cosmos, our world. 
For progressive Adventists, of course, when God becomes one with us in Jesus Christ, everything is transformed. There's a fundamental liberative and new order. There's a new humanity. There's a new society. And we better, if we, remember John says that eternal life begins now. Therefore, we are now living in a world in which we care for the cosmos like God cares for it, therefore environmental stewardship. We care for justice. Therefore, we have to be involved, not in quietistic pietism, but in world-changing activism. God cares for the whole world. Therefore, we can't sit simply in an ideal little world of wrapped-up luxury. We have to go to the world. Mission is essential for every dimension of what we do because God pursues us and cares for us, and therefore we must go and reach them too. And, of course, yeah. All right. God with us suggests possibly that we could develop a deeper model of the atonement that's built around representation, which is a new idea that has been developed within the 20th century theology. I don't have time to say anything more about that, but we could do that. I want to end with this. We've been talking about salvation, but we've been raising the issue of the doctrinal differences no, we agreed on doctrine, because all of these metaphors are in the doctrines. The theological differences, which has developed into these four almost competing models of Adventism today. I think we could get somewhere along the line, and I'm not turning the topic to, to jewelry, but the point is, sometimes we think of doctrine as beads on a chain, right? And then we get anxious because any bead that changes... We think the whole chain could fall to pieces and the whole thing will break. And maybe we would put Jesus at the bottom, that beautiful little star or jewel at the bottom. But I'd like to suggest a different understanding of doctrine, different understanding. Not beads on a chain, but facets of a jewel. And that the jewel is the advent itself, is God with us, is Jesus Christ. And every doctrinal understanding we have develops not like this as a linear progress, doctrine of God, doctrine of man, doctrine of salvation, church. That follows the standard systematic theology outline. It has a logic to it. It's fine. I'm not critiquing that. But when we only see beliefs as little beads on a chain, we fail to see that this, I think, is what they're supposed to be. Where every one of them, doctrine of God or eschatology or Christian life or church, salvation, creation, understanding, sorry for the non-inclusive language of humanity, all of these are facets and ways in which we can gain a deeper insight into the one reality, which is the reality of the New Testament, which is the reality of Adventist faith, which is the Advent itself, God with us, Jesus Christ. That's the center. That's the gospel. Everything else is an attempt to see a facet of the gospel. And that would allow us then to be able to have cordial, decent discourses with each other, right? Because we, we, we may be coming at things from different facets. We could perhaps learn from each other as to how these facets make sense. And I put to you as the hypothesis, and I'm going to put my cards on the table, I think that this may in fact help us to see that we are fighting each other, maybe, you know, I'll put it earlier, rough elbowing each other at the present time, when it's not necessary because we could be learning from each other and pressing together to see that ultimately we are simply attempting to articulate a single truth. The truth is the truth of God with us and everything else is an attempt to make sense of that. We can learn from each other. We can keep the dialogue going rather than attempting to make it a winner-take-all scenario. Well, I'm going to stop there. I'm sorry I've gone over time and sorry there's... But do we have a few moments for question? Sure. Okay. Thank you very much for your patience. With all this. I think you misspoke when you said God will never become creature because you're talking about in Jesus, He is God and 
Thank you. Thank you. You see, that's what we have good wives for. <laughs> Help us not to. Miss. Of course, God has become creature. That's the gospel. But what I meant is God would not cease to be God. So that it is simply, it's a once God lived in heaven, now God's got nothing in But taking on humanity without ceasing to be God. Thank you. Well, let me just say that it, it just seems to me that the message that you presented to us should be heard by the world church. And I certainly hope that you're republishing this and somehow getting it out. Thank you. Publishing in this field is a <laughs> is a career endangering move, but we try to we 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 try to there's a lot. Thank you very much. <laughs> Please be careful with the tapes. <laughs> I, I agree, actually, with that thought. I really enjoyed your, your talk today. Um, just note, noticed uh, the facility with which Paul switches gears back and forth so easily. In, in, in First Corinthians, after he went on this discussion of the mystery of God and, and the wisdom of God, actually, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, he then, in contradistinction, tells the Corinthians, you're not ready for this stuff. You know, you are still carnal, and therefore I must feed you milk. So you're not ready to understand the wisdom of God. And most of the book, even though it, it, it's like the most sublime passages, I think, in the New Testament are found in First Corinthians, most of the book is him detailing this laundry list of all these things that they need to fix, you know, sexual morality, I you know, heard about this and that going amongst you people, you know, the whole speaking in tongues issue that he was trying to address and many other things. And so he's just kind of, there's a place for, there's a place for laundry lists, there's a place for detailing certain behaviors and talking about these things and correct, correctional um, teaching. And then there's a place for this marvelous stuff that he discusses in Colossians. That, yeah. I just thought it was interesting that he told the Corinthians, you're not ready for this. Right. I, 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 think that's, I think that's a very, very helpful. I would suggest to you that there is a logical connection. Paul does the first stuff, and as scholars have now shown, not as isolated attempts to do systematic theology. You never have that in the New Testament. This is too, this is too practical. This is, this is life and death stuff. But he introduces that as the basis for which he then goes on to make those practical arguments. And I'll show you how it works in just one area. If God has, has deemed, has destined God's self not to be only supremely holy and away from us, but actually to be with us and to bring at one between God and humanity, then how dare we not be willing to bring slave and free together, male and female, and Jew and Gentile. And although Jew and Gentile was the primary focus right then and there, there's a logic, there's a vector to this that it seems to me is so plain when you can get the gospel clear. I mean, I would even dare to say that that helps us to understand one of the contemporary little challenges we have about the role of woman in the church, right? Because it derives from this fundamental understanding. Whereas if you see the fundamental nature of salvation to be some abstract sense of holy principles which must be laid out, headship and, and authority and all of this, then you could be mistaken into thinking that we must then co coordinate human organization so that it fits to some ideal set of principles rather than see it as derivative of the facet of the diamond. 
that has a correspondence. If God does this, then we should do that. So I think that's how that laundry list should be read. And um, uh, so it, you know, Paul is ultimately interested in the laundry list. He wants to help the church to grow and be mature. But you're right. Sometimes he despairs and says, I can't give you the, the, the deep stuff. This is the milk. But uh, at least let's get some order going in the church so that we can actually <laughs> you know, listen to each other when we talk. And yet he intersperses some of his most sublime passages as he's going through you know, this correctional. That's right. Thank you so much. Very helpful. Once again, thank you so much for inviting me to be here with you. I've enjoyed